Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. This week we are once again doing one of my favorite things to do on the podcast, walking through a passage of scripture and seeing what it has to teach us about economics. I've done this several times before with episodes such as the one on Exodus 16, which is easy to remember because it is episode 16 on Exodus 16. That was completely an accident. It was not intentional. I don't even think I realized that it was episode 16 on Exodus 16 until after I'd already dropped it or just before I dropped that episode. But hey, it makes it easy to remember. So if you haven't listened to that one, you can go check it out after this one. It talks about the manna in the wilderness that the Israelites gathered for 40 years and what that does and does not teach us about economics. Or another one where I did something like this was the episodes that I did, uh, I think around like 20 or 22, the episodes I did on the parable of the day laborers. This week we are looking at Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. We're going to compare and contrast the socialist Good Samaritan and the biblical Good Samaritan. But before we jump into that, I want to ask you all to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, turn on the auto-downloads, that way you don't miss any episodes, follow Theana Money on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Gab. A lot more people are jumping on Twitter now since Elon bought it last month, so if you just decided to jump on Twitter now, then go give Theana Money a follow, and tell your friends about the podcast, that way the message of what God's law teaches us about all of life, but for this episode, particularly about economics, can get around the world. And since a lot of y'all listening are post mail, can possibly even change the world. And one last announcement. I'm looking at probably here soon switching to Dropwave. I'm working on making sure that it tries to get the same RSS feed. That way it doesn't make any changes to you. But um, if I can't get that all straightened out with the transfer, then there might be a slight change in where Theana Money is located at. If it does, it should automatically link you to the new place you can go to. So I'm trying to get that all straightened out, and that should be done by the end of the month or in the next couple weeks or so. So back to the topic. If we want to think about the parable of the Good Samaritan and its influence on economics, then we first need to begin by studying the passage. We don't want to get into the text with presuppositions about what we want it to say. That is eisegesis, putting what you want the text to say into it at the very beginning. What we want to do instead is to practice good hermeneutics and see what the passage teaches us, what God is saying through the text, what the Holy Spirit meant when he inspired it through the human author, and then draw implications and applications from that. So I want to start by doing just that. We won't dive into a ton of detail and exegeting the passage, though that would be fun and helpful for myself and y'all listening. But if I did that, 
and then after that tried to relate it to the topic of this episode, this would probably go over an hour. And as much as that would be great, I think most of y'all would want me to try to keep this normal podcast length and not go over an hour by diving super deep into the parable of the Good Samaritan. Besides, there are probably sermons on sermon audio on this passage that are preached by people way more capable at preaching than I am, and you can go check those out instead. But we are going to look at a little bit and look at specifically some of the more economic implications of this text. So let's jump to Luke. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. If you want to read along with, with me, then go ahead and pause the podcast for a moment. Flip there. I'm going to be reading out of the Legacy Standard Bible. And then let's read this. If you are driving right now while listening to this, then please don't pull out your Bible and start trying to flip to the passage. Please keep your eyes on the road. So Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. It says, And behold, a scholar of the law stood up and was putting him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So we see there the passage. Now that we've read it, let's take a moment to pray before we dive into it. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ease of access we have to your word that most of church history did not have as we have today. May we glorify you through this, not take your word for granted. Help us now as we are studying this passage to understand it rightly, to apply it to our lives rightly, and to not twist and misinterpret your word as we seek to understand it and apply it to our lives today. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's look at this a little bit. First, let's look at verse 25. It says that this man, the scholar of the law, was trying to test Jesus. Now, it doesn't say specifically, as far as I can tell, whether his motives in this were malicious, like he's trying to trap Jesus. There are times where a Pharisee or a scribe, it says that he's trying to trap Jesus. Or maybe he was a little bit more genuine and wanting to make sure that Jesus, this new popular scribe, is teaching God's word properly. 
Now I'm a probably a little bit more leaning on the more malicious side because the scribes, the scholars of the law, the Pharisees seem to often be trying to trip up Jesus and get him to mess up. So I'm probably more apt to go a little bit on that side of things. Also note verse 21, just a little bit before verse 25. It says, uh, this is the passage right before this one. At that time, he, Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And then as soon as the passage that contains that verse is done, we get into this passage that starts off with this scholar of the law putting Jesus to the test. So I think maybe there's a little bit of something malicious there, like trying to trick Jesus, trying to trap him, trying to see if maybe he doesn't understand the Bible, right? At least something along that line. And then so he says to Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Like, well, what does the Bible say? How do you have eternal life according to Moses, according to the Bible, Jesus tells him. And the man repeats in uh, verse 27, he basically tells Jesus the Ten Commandments. He says, love God and love neighbor. He draws it out a little bit more specifically. He says, love God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But that's really just drawing it out a little bit more specifically as to a bit of what loving God looks like. It's still that same basic premise of love God, love neighbor. And now that's something a lot of people today like to say, oh, the gospel is love God, love neighbor. No, don't say that. That is like actually heresy. Why? Well, because of something that's often overlooked, although a point theonomists like myself love to point out, love God, love neighbor is a summary of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are actually uh, explained in detail throughout the book of Deuteronomy and things like that. Deuteronomy in a lot of ways is practically a commentary on the Ten Commandments as they apply to Israel. So when you say love God, love neighbor, and that's the gospel, you're basically saying obey the Mosaic law, and that's the gospel. And I think Paul in Galatians has a pretty big problem with people who say things like that. Now, how exactly is love God, love neighbor a summary of the Ten Commandments? Well, look at the Ten Commandments. As we go through them, we see that the first four or five are relating to God, not having graven images. The second one, worshiping God alone. The first one, these things are referring to specifically our, ourselves vertically to God. And then you look at the rest of the commandments after that, and now it's rever referring to things horizontally with others. Don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't murder, and then the other commandments. Love God, love neighbor is a summary of the Ten Commandments. So anytime you see in the New Testament, love God, love neighbor, you can kind of just in a certain extent encapsulate the entire first five books of the Old Testament into that one statement. And uh, Jesus says to him that he answered correctly, because if we're going to be perfect by our own righteousness before God, then we have to do it perfectly, which, you know, the entire point of things like the first several chapters of Romans is that you can't do that, and therefore you need the gospel. James, in James chapter 1, if you keep this one commandment, but you break another, then you've broken the entire law of God. You break one law, and all of it's broken. I like the analogy of a windshield. 
you get a little tiny six inch long crack in your windshield and though your windshield is several feet wide that six inch crack means the entire windshield is broken you don't just crack a window or a pane of glass when a little part of a pane of glass is broken the entire thing is broken whether or not the entire thing is spider webbed and so this man is telling jesus basically the ten commandments love god love neighbor fulfill what we refer to as the first and second tablet of the ten commandments though actually both tablets had the, all ten written on them, we just commonly refer to it as the first and second tablet of the law. And then the man, after Jesus tells him, you answered correctly, do this and you will live, it says, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And let's pause there for a second on that. It says, wishing to justify himself, he asked who his neighbor is. Notice something there. He didn't feel the need to justify himself concerning his failure to love God properly, but he felt the need to justify himself concerning his failure to love his neighbor properly. Yes, we all fail in both regards. We all act sinfully towards other humans, whether our family members or our friends or coworkers or whatever. But also, all of us much more fail in regards to loving God properly. In fact, when you sin against a fellow human, you so much more sin against God that it, it's almost like you could say, I've sinned against God alone, even though you actually have also sinned against other people. When David is penning Psalm 51, after sinning greatly against both Bathsheba and Uriah, after all, he had just had Uriah killed, he says to God, against you, you only have I sinned. But David didn't sin against only God in the most broad, literal sense. He sinned against Bathsheba. After all, they committed adultery with one another. He sinned against Uriah by having Uriah killed to cover up his adultery. He sinned against the entire nation of Israel by abusing the power they gave him in order to fulfill his own sinful, selfish desires. He sinned against a lot of other humans in that, but his sin was ultimately though not exclusively against God, so that David could say, against you, you only have I sinned to God, though he had also sinned against other people. And we can also repeat that same sentiment, that same statement, whenever we sin against someone else. That yes, we sinned against that person horizontally, but also much more we sinned against God vertically, no matter who or what we sinned against on a creaturely level. But this man... He feels the need to justify himself for not loving his neighbor properly. This, at least in my understanding, in my thought process, seems to imply he doesn't feel the need to justify his love for God. So he probably thinks that he's got the love for God done. He thinks he's doing a great job of loving God with all his heart, all his soul, all his strength, and all his mind. Going back to verse 27, but the issue is that he is not doing that. He is not loving God properly in any faculty that even the most mature believer on the planet right now, you know, you can think the Apostle Paul, you can think your favorite guy in church history, you can think of someone today that you really like, maybe for me, Paul Washer. And even those men don't go five minutes properly loving God the way they should. And these are you know, probably some of the most mature men in the faith in all of church history, let alone this scholar of the law who 
appears right here to not be a believer yet. I have no indication whatsoever he's a Christian at this point in the account in the gospel. And we can look at several things here on the contrary, like here wanting to justify himself in this way. But he's not looking at that. This is showing his lack of understanding of how his sin and his lack of love is much more against God than it is against neighbors, though it is against both God and neighbor. But instead he justifies himself on his lack of love by neighbor by saying, who is my neighbor? Likely he's wanting Jesus to say, your neighbor is this select group close to you. And so therefore, as long as you're loving them properly, you can try to say you've obeyed God's law because you've loved those close to you well enough to say that you've inherited eternal life. But Jesus doesn't answer the question the way that the scholar expected him to. Jesus answers the question with a parable. Jesus does this a lot. It's a very great way of explaining things. Of It's a good oratory skill. It's a good way of trapping people when they're trying to trap you by flipping the script on them. And so it's something that, as I've grown and matured, that I try to do things like this a little bit more, like take some cues from Jesus with the way he interacts with people in the Gospels, and then take some cues from other people who have try to follow the same thing Jesus is doing and are a little bit better than I am. Like, see how they try to do the same thing Jesus did in different scenarios and conversations and see, okay, that's how I do it in that situation and things like that. And so Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now we're finally getting to the parable. You know the story. You've probably heard it in Sunday school a million times. I just read the passage a little bit ago. This man from Jerusalem, he is going to Jericho. Some robbers catch him along the road. They beat him. They steal his stuff. They take his clothes and they leave him naked and hours away from death. And so then these uh, two people that would be seen as heroes of first century Judaism, they come by the man. And now you're thinking, okay, these like great righteous people, these guys that, you know, they're not righteous, then no one is. Newsflash, uh, Jesus did say in the Sermon on the Mount, that if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you're not good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. But these people that the first century Jews probably thought, if anyone's going to help someone, it'll be these people. They walk right by the man. It talks about them passing along the other side of the road so they don't even have to come that close to him. First, uh, we see here that the priest, he was going down that same road. And then after that, the Levite also. And it says, like I said, it says both of them passed by on the other side of the road. Now, you know, they had their whatever reasons they were for not doing this, which were probably selfish in motive. Uh, perhaps, you know, they're on a busy schedule. Perhaps they justify the reason to themselves and convince themselves that it wasn't a selfish motive. They said, you know, I'm, I've got a busy schedule. I've got to get along to where I'm going. Maybe the guy was going the opposite way from Jericho to Jerusalem in order to do something important at the temple or something like that. And he's trying to say, well, what I got to do at the temple is more important than saving this guy's life. So, you know, I got to get back there. I've got a busy schedule. Maybe it's they see this guy is nearing death. And if they were to pick him up and carry him to the nearest town in order to get him first aid, well, the guy could die while he was carrying him. And therefore, he will have touched an unclean body, sorry, touched a dead body and become ceremonially unclean. And he doesn't want to have to deal with now being ceremonially unclean from touching a dead body and then all the purification laws he needs to go through before he can serve in the temple 
or in whatever other religious duties he has and, you know, making up different things like that. The text doesn't really tell us why they didn't do it. These are just some thoughts I have as to what kind of excuses they may have made in their mind. You can think of some others, whatever you think fits, as long as it is exegetically sound since it doesn't say here and their reasoning for not doing it is not the main point of what Jesus is getting at. Then a Samaritan starts walking down the same road and sees this man. And now some background on the Jews and the Samaritans. Maybe you already know a little bit of this. Maybe some of this is new for you. The Samaritans were a mixed Jewish ethnicity. You know, you had in the Old Testament, the split with the northern ten tribes, the southern two tribes. The northern ten tribes go into captivity a lot sooner than the southern two tribes do. The Israelites get spread around and, well... Through all this mixing of different ethnic groups in different lands that their conquering nation does to try to keep people separated from their ancestral heritage, you know, something that we don't think is that bad to be separated from your ancestral heritage anymore, but these ruling conquering nations were doing it intentionally to try to mess with the people and make them not be as likely to revolt. They caused these Jews to get mixed in with the pagan people around them. And so now the Samaritans are an ethnically mixed people, part Jewish, part some of the other nations that got put into the land of the northern ten tribes, Samaria and Galilee, in the first century. And there was this whole fight between them. The Samaritans thought that you were supposed to worship God in Samaria, not at the temple in Jerusalem. John 4 gives a little bit more into that when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And now there's this whole thing here, and the Jews and Samaritans basically hate each other for the religious reasons, for the uh, pure descendant of Abraham versus part Jew, part Gentile ethnic reason, and for, you know, probably some other things too. The two just, like, hate each other. But this Samaritan, he sees this Jewish man. It says he's from Jerusalem, so this is probably a full Jewish man. He's living in Judea. This Samaritan sees the man, sees how hurt he is, that he's probably on the verge of death, bandages up his wounds, puts the guy on his animal, and takes him to a nearby town to get him some medical treatment and to take him to an inn. That way he has somewhere safe to spend the night, however many nights it takes him to recover. And the Samaritan gives the innkeeper two denarii, that's two days wage for the average day laborer, and basically says, you know, this will cover his expenses while he's here and anything you need to buy to help him get better. If it's not enough to cover it all, then next time I'm in town, I'll pay you back the rest of it. Paying off the guy's expenses out of his own pocket to cover it. And so that's basically our quick run through of the Good Samaritan of this parable here. Uh, basically what Jesus is saying there to the man is that anyone is his neighbor. Any fellow human made in the image of God is his neighbor, including the people that he hates, like the Samaritans. And uh, so that's how Jesus is telling him, basically, you haven't loved your neighbor because you need to love all humans, not just those specific people around you that you like, but including other people out there that you don't like. By the way, love there is not defined as love like our current culture does, that love means accepting them and approving of their sin. Love there means love like God loves, which includes hatred of what is evil. To love what is good, you must hate what is evil. But now that we've looked at this parable, 
Let's compare and contrast the socialist Good Samaritan and the biblical Good Samaritan. As we're looking at this, um, we're going to look at the two in a little bit of a cartoony kind of anachronistic way. We can have a little bit of fun with that because it's making a point and I'm not trying to say that like, I'm not trying to write these two people 100% into the text. Of course, there's going to be some things with the socialist Good Samaritan that wouldn't have worked in the first century, but just go along with it, have some fun with this kind of cartoony and person cartoony way of looking at what a socialist good samaritan would look like so the socialist good samaritan he's coming along down the road he's probably thinking about new ways that he can create more fiat currency to increase the money supply or raise taxes as he's drawing going down along the way and he sees the person hurt on the side of the street and he feels really bad and so what does he do he does the best thing he can think of to help the person or more specifically to help the people in the future who could be like him because it's already too late for that guy he runs off to where he came from and runs for public office talking about how he's going to make legislation to help the little guy and to care for the oppressed people and you ignore all of those psalms we sing in synagogue and at our annual feasts if you're not supporting me and trying to help the oppressed and downtrodden because the psalms talk about helping them and so he's running on all this legislation. He gets local public office and whatever part of Judea, whatever town he's in, like I said, is a little bit anachronistic. It's going to get a little bit more anachronistic, but bear with me. And now he passes some legislation to try to help people like that good Samaritan to help that not happen. He uh, tries to make it harder for people to get the weapons that they use to beat the man. Perhaps he will make it where you need to get background checks in order to acquire those weapons and a waiting period. Once your background check is done, then you have to wait so long before you can actually buy the weapon. And, you know, maybe if you've done certain things too many times and you're just banned from ever purchasing that weapon again. I know this is a little bit facetious, but you get the point. Uh, and he wants to do other things too. He doesn't just want to make it more difficult for people to get these weapons that the attackers of the good samaritan used to kill him because at this point the good samaritans already died since he didn't actually help that specific guy he's just you know trying to pass legislation to keep it from happening again but he also wants to do other things to help people so he's going to get a higher tax rate he says you know caesar didn't get a high enough tax rate for us all oppressive though caesar's tax rate was the people like zacchaeus before his conversion who were adding to the tax rate to pocket the money themselves they still weren't adding enough to it we need to add even more to the tax rate and use that money that way when someone does get attacked we can cover his uh, hospital bills we can pay that innkeeper to get him some food and an inn for several nights and whatever he needs to recover and we need to be able to cover his bills for him because you know he needs someone to pay his bills for him like the good samaritan did and so the socialist good samaritan is going to pay his bills for him out of taxpayer money and also you know while he's out of work it's gonna be pretty rough on his income so we need to give him some kind of unemployment or workers comp while he's recovering and all of that needs to come out of taxes because after all the socialist good samaritan really cares about making sure these people get help so he's going to tax everyone that way we can give this guy money now of course these new welfare laws and what i just gave you was an exhaustive list of course he's going to have others as well they're going to take a committee of people to run and those committee of people, all these people running this, they need to be paid with part of that increased tax rate that's going to pay for all this welfare. 
And because their work is so important, they probably really need to be paid pretty well, at the very least, somewhat above the average Israelite income level, maybe even quite a bit above that, because, you know, this is important work they're doing. So uh, we need to really raise the taxes quite a bit. That way, half of it can pay all of their salary and half of it can go towards actually helping the people. See, he's actually really frugal here because if I remember correctly, in the U.S., more than half of it of the taxes that go to welfare go to administrative costs and less than half of it goes towards actually helping people. So the Socialist Good Samaritan is actually pretty frugal compared to the United States and their welfare. So that's maybe what the Socialist Good Samaritan will look like. He's going to go, you know, let that guy die because it's too late for him and go run for public office and make new laws to make it harder to get weapons and pass uh, legislation to raise taxes in order to help care for people that are hurt like that in the future. Maybe he'll even make some laws about uh, you need a pass to go out past dark. That way we can try to keep these marauding bands of thieves from going around raiding people and stealing from them. Because after all, we know that criminals do obey all of the laws we put in place to keep them from doing their crime. But how does that compare to the biblical Good Samaritan from the man we just saw in the story here? Well, notice he did all the work himself. He didn't go try to raise taxes to try to have the money from taxes cover the help this guy needed. No, he did all the work himself. It says, we see here in uh, verse 34, the Good Samaritan came to the man and bandaged up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them, so, you know, cleaning them out. You know, in like movies and stuff, pour some whiskey on your cut or tear or whatever it is in order to clean it out. Just like rubbing alcohol today, since though they are different, rubbing alcohol and drinking alcohol are not the same. Both do an effective job at killing germs and bacteria. Think of that similar concept when he's pouring the wine on the guy's tears and wounds and all of that. And then putting the guy in his own animal and bringing him to an inn and taking care of him. This biblical good Samaritan is doing all this work himself, nursing the guy's wounds himself, taking his time, taking his labor, taking his resources in order to take care of this guy directly in the moment when he needs help. He's helping his own money. When we continue on from where we were just looking at and we see he took two denarii, like I said, the average day laborers, two days wages, and he pays that to the innkeeper and says, use this money to take care of him, cover the cost of him staying at your inn, and if he goes more than two denarii, I'll come back at some point and I'll pay you whatever else he owes. Also, the Good Samaritan is really trusting the innkeeper there because the innkeeper, if he was not an honest guy, could say the Good, sorry, not the Good Samaritan, but the guy who was attacked, say by the time he leaves, he racks up three denarii worth of costs. If this innkeeper was a liar and a thief, when the Good Samaritan comes back, he could say he racked up five, so you owe me three, when in reality you only need to pay one more. So he is showing some trust to the innkeeper. Maybe it's someone he already knew, and that's why he trusted the guy so much to leave the man who was hurt there. Uh, but the parable stops there, with the Good Samaritan doing all of this work himself, his own labor, his own time, his own money, his own resources. But we could go further. I talked about you know, the socialist Good Samaritan trying to do something in the culture to prevent similar things from happening, or at least claiming he was preventing similar things from happening. But let's go a little bit further, once again, being anachronistic with the situation and talk about 
what the Good Samaritan could have done if he wanted to get involved in culture and politics to keep situations like this from happening quite so often in the future. Uh, he could have tried to warn people in the surrounding area, say, hey, I just the other day saw this guy who was robbed and almost killed and I was able to nurse him back to health, but be careful out there because, you know, there seems to be more thieves in the area. Maybe try to not be out past dark unless you're in a large group to try to avoid them. Maybe try to avoid being on these roads by yourself at all. You know, just trying to warn nearby people about what's going on. Uh, maybe if biblical law on crime had be, been becoming lax, after all, we are talking about Judea in the first century. If you've read the book, The Makers versus the Takers by Jerry Bowyer, you know how much things similar to what we today call crony capitalism were happening there political connections and things like that. So biblical law was probably becoming lax. Maybe he could try to see what he could do with the priests and Levites and scribes and Pharisees and anyone else to try to crack down a bit on biblical law for punishments with just punishments, including restitution, capital punishment if someone has been murdered. And in this instance with the Good Samaritan, someone had attempted to murder the man injured in the story. So he could have tried to have a sort of revival, a returning to biblical law for society in order to try to see this happen less in the future. He maybe even could have tried to have some kind of plan for evangelism for not just at the more state sphere of sovereignty level returning to biblical law, but also on the individual level. And maybe then some of these thieves would hear the gospel and turn away from their stealing, like with Ephesians 4, let the one who stole no longer steal, but rather let him labor, working with his hands that which is good, that he may have to give to those who are in need. And so what would this look like today, this whole socialist Good Samaritan versus the biblical Good Samaritan? What could this look like today? Well, one, caring for others directly including those who hate us, like this Samaritan probably just assumed that this man from the Judea area, he probably didn't know immediately he was from Jerusalem, but he's around Jerusalem, assumed this guy would hate him, but he saw a guy who hates, probably hates him along the side of the road about to die, and he cared for him anyways and nursed him back to health. So especially for brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to care for them, but also people in general and, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, and maybe the more local to us, the better, because you want to try to help your local area raise up. It's where you live. It's where your children and grandchildren will live if they don't move elsewhere. So you really want to try to help your local area do well, like people are saying often these days, county before country. You can also try to be a little bit of, in our day, working towards what this would look like by instilling in other believers around us these ideas of caring for people directly, not thinking, oh, well, my taxes pay for welfare programs that help them, so I don't need to do it, but just ignoring those and caring for people directly, instilling that idea into believers around us, including our children, to influence future generations. Uh, get churches involved. A lot of churches do things like soup kitchens and stuff like that. Get churches involved in trying to help the poor and the injured around you. And maybe eventually as more Christians run for government office, we can try to get the government out of welfare so that the church can step into this place that is her role, is her responsibility, is her sphere. And the government stepped in to be a nanny state, especially as the church started neglecting this responsibility of hers. The government was more than willing to step in 
because of the power that comes with it. And so that isn't an immediate process. This is a generations long process of Christians taking the double hindrance of having to pay taxes to pay for these welfare programs that don't work, but then also out of our money left over after taxes, paying directly and doing the work and using the resources to help people who are injured or harmed by others or oppressed or poor or what have you and uh, working towards that and instilling that in Christians around us, especially our children, Lord willing, all of our children become believers and do better things for Christ than we will. And then our grandchildren do better than our children do and et cetera down the line because hashtag that post mill and just trying to work down the line to the church stepping back into her role of being the minister of mercy rather than the government trying to go outside its lane and uh, be the minister of mercy and the minister of wrath at the same time. Um, now, I know that maybe just sounds trite, maybe it doesn't sound like it'll work, but that's because I'm talking here about a 200-year plan, not a two-year plan, for getting the government to stop doing what the church should be doing and getting the church to start doing what she is doing a little bit, but should be doing a lot more. And so that was comparing the socialist Good Samaritan with the biblical Good Samaritan. And that was this week's episode of Theana Money. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Say